Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 32. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church commits, uh, submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Great. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Ephesians that has been so stimulating and challenging and encouraging. And we pray today it would stimulate us, challenge us, encourage us, and most of all lead us to understanding our relationship with you better. Amen. So we're in this letter to Ephesians, and Paul gets to the moment where he says, now let me get practical, when I want to apply this into marriage, into the home, into you know, parenting, and into the workplace the next few weeks. Now, marriage has been a topic of huge discussion, debate in Ireland since the same-sex marriage referendum in 2015. So there's been opinions and views on the newspapers, TVs, down the pub. You'll have had the conversations. You will have your views. What is marriage? What is its purpose? Who is able to get marriage? married. Well, Ephesians 5 is the most thorough and uh, prolonged teaching on marriage we have in the whole of the Bible. So today I want to look at those questions, the questions our culture has been asking over the last five or ten years, and look at it from a biblical perspective. How does God define marriage? What does God say the purpose of marriage is? And not just on a theoretical level, but also on a practical level. How do you make sure your marriage thrives, is life-giving, is full of joy, and strengthens both the members of the marriage, but just as importantly, those in the community that the marriage is within, uh, you know, other people around you? Now, I'm coming up to 15 years married, would you believe it or not? And I was dating Leanne for seven years before, so I've been with Leanne since I was 15 years old. That makes me 37, good maths, that's 22 years. I've been with Leanne longer than I've not been with Leanne. And I can say marriage is not easy. Uh, especially if you're married to, you know, uh, and it takes work, 
and it takes effort. And marriage is not the answer to all your problems. In fact, it will probably create as many problems as it might solve. Last night, we were watching a film called Fantastic Beasts, uh, where Where to Find Them. And I fell asleep during the film and started to snore. And Leanne said she could hardly hear the film because of my snoring. See, marriage will create problems. You know, you used to just watch films in silence, now you have a snoring husband. Um, But marriage can be rewarding, empowering, life-giving. And ultimately, Paul's point today, marriage should be helping us understand our union with Christ, which we've been thinking about a lot in Ephesians, union with Christ. So we're going to look at three things from Ephesians. The power of marriage, uh, the power for marriage, excuse me, the secret of marriage, and the roles in marriage. And just quickly, if you're here today and you're single, you're widowed, or you're divorced, why would you sit and listen to a talk on marriage? Here are three reasons. Firstly, many of you want to be married at some point. So it's important that you know what marriage is and what it isn't, according to the Bible. Secondly, as I've hinted at, marriage is not easy. And married couples need support. And if you're single, we need your support. You have a role to play in our lives. Thirdly, marriage, if it is centered on Jesus, will strengthen and support and be a blessing to singles. And it should be. And we hope this church can model that. So just as much as we need you, I think you need us and we need each other. So three reasons to listen if you're a single person today. So the power of marriage. Paul says you need three things make marriage work. To be filled with the Spirit, verse 18, to be mutually submissive, the first part of 21, and to fear Christ, the second part of 21. I know our Bible divides it up differently if you're reading from your Bible, but it was just one big letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We've added the division. It's one big chapter going back to the start of chapter 5 of of what it means to be children of light. And Paul says, well, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul says, well, if you're filled with the Spirit, what is the sign that you're filled with the Spirit? Well, you're going to sing songs, make music, and give thanks, verses 19 to 20. In other words, to be filled with the Spirit is to have an inner joy that makes you sing. Why? Because you've understood all that Jesus has done for you, the first four chapters of Ephesians, your union with him. To be filled with the Spirit is to know that your whole value, hope, security, significance, status, and worth comes from Jesus. You're in Christ now. If you've been with us, you'll know what we look, we've been looking at it. So instead of finding refuge in drink, Paul's point when he's talking about drinking 18, which leads to wild, uncontrolled actions, find your refuge in Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit. And that'll cause you to have joy and to sing without alcohol. So to be filled with the Spirit means to have an inner relish of the soul, a contentment, a peace within you, a happiness in Jesus. And then he says, with that inner fullness, with that emotional wealth and health and overflow, there's another sign that you're filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, be submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, the next mark of being filled with the Spirit after you sing songs and music and and give thanks is that you submit to one another. You can serve one another. You can defer to others. You can let others' opinions and desires come above your own. So to be filled with the Spirit is defined by the loss of pride and self-will that means you can humbly serve another person. As humans, we're made in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And from all eternity, the Father and the Son have been deferring and serving and loving the other, the Father, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Son, the Son, the Father. Theologians have called it the divine dance. You know, each member of the Trinity is trying to put the other one in the middle to center their lives on the other one. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be very like God and is to be given an inner joy, which means you can submit to someone else, you can serve them, you can defer to them. In other words, you can take yourself out the center and you can put someone else in the center. So to submit to one another will mean you lose control over lots of things in your life. You'll lose autonomous control over your schedule. You'll lose autonomous control over when you take holidays, where you eat, how you spend your spare time, how often you see your family and friends. You'll lose autonomous control over the decisions you make about your future. The list goes on. So guess what? Marriage will only be possible and it will only be all that God intended it it to be if you can take yourself out of the center and put someone else in the center. And we find that hard because in our natural state, we want to be the center, don't we? We want our needs, our desires, our preferences, our agenda, our decisions. We want to be in control. When you get married, you come face to face with someone else who has a different desire, agenda, preferences decisions. And if you do not have an inner relish of the soul, you will never give up that pride and self-will to serve the other person. And therefore, you won't have the power that's needed for marriage. It's only as you're filled with the Spirit that you can give up control. And so it's no surprise that the second part of verse 21 says, out of reverence for Christ, the third mark of being filled with the Spirit is that you fear Christ. You will only do this if you've given over control of your life first to Jesus. A prerequisite to submission to one another is that I'm submitted to Jesus, and therefore I no longer claim control of my life. He's in charge now. Now, this can sound very oppressive to modern ears, living in a culture that tells you to take control, to submit to no one, to be restricted by no one, to never let anyone take away your freedom. Those kind of mottos are all over our world today. But actually, they're very counterintuitive. If at the heart of all reality is a God who serves and defers to the other, it is no surprise to find selfishness destroys relationships, but selflessness causes them to flourish. We've got to learn this. C.S. Lewis put it better than anyone else when reflecting on Jesus' call to deny yourself. You know, Jesus says, deny yourself, similar kind of call. He says, the same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who... Even in literature or art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence uh, how often it's been told before, you're nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. The print, Lewis goes on, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body and in the end submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life keep back nothing nothing that you've not given away will be really yours nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead look for yourself 
and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, fear Christ, and you'll find him, and you'll have everything else thrown in. Paul says here, you want to have a power that can face any valley and challenge in marriage, and a power that will reach every glorious height and wonder of marriage. Stop focusing on yourself. Focus on the other. That is what love's about. How? Submit to one another. How? Out of reverence for Christ. How? Because you have an inner relish of the soul given by the Spirit. Only when you have that inner strength and that overflowing joy, which means you make music in your, with your mouth, is you can give yourself up for your spouse. I have all I need in Jesus. Therefore, I can stop trying to take things from my spouse or get annoyed about it. I can just, I can give. Hugely. This is the power for marriage. Hugely powerful. Let me think about what, it, let's think about what this means. Firstly, very practically, for those of you that are not married, very practical point, and you may one day want to be married, marriage will not fill the void in your heart. Only Jesus can do that. Our culture has films that constantly say, you suddenly find this fulfillment as you end up in marriage. If you go into marriage thinking your marriage will solve all your problems and fill the void in your heart, you will actually devastate your marriage and you'll crush your spouse. If you put all your hope in marriage to complete you and satisfy you, you're putting too much pressure on the marriage and your spouse and you'll let them down and they'll let you down and you'll probably be a whole lot worse off than you were before. In my opinion, it is worse to be lonely and married and trapped than lonely and single. But many people find they're in lonely marriages because they expected their spouse to answer all their life's problems. And their spouse can never do that because only Jesus can do that. Secondly, again, for those that are married or want to be married, when you come into a problem in your marriage, stop trying to fix the other person. Oh dear, this one started buzzing at me. Stop trying to fix the other person and ask God to fix you. When challenges arise in a marriage, the default of every couple who has a biblical understanding of the human heart and sin should be not how can I fix the other person, but Jesus, how can you fill me with your spirit to fix me and change me and make me to be to love the person in front of me even if they never change. I often say this to couples and remind myself to Leanne when we're, um, no, remind Leanne, yeah, remind myself when Leanne and I are having challenges. The biggest problem in our, our marriage is not circumstances, it's sin. That's the biblical view. So when you face challenges in your marriage, instead of trying to fix the other person, say to yourself, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem here, not the other person. Can you see the power of marriage? It's not a competition between husband and wife. It's not a jostling for position and, and to prove who's right and who's wrong. It's not standing on your rights and working out reasons why you're going to justify your actions, justify your attitudes, justify your decisions. You're not focused on yourself at all. You're focused on the other. Thirdly, I urge you to take my, my mum's advice because she gave me before I got married. Stephen, the best gift I can give my spouse or Leanne is the quality of my relationship with Jesus. The best gift I can give Leanne is the quality of my relationship with Jesus. If I'm filled with the Spirit, if I'm overflowing with joy, if all my hopes and securities are in Christ, I'll be able to give myself and, and serve her out of reverence for Him. That's the power of marriage. Spirit-filled, reverence for Christ, submission to one another. Secondly, 
the secret of marriage. Do you see it in verse 32? I use the word secretly, deliberately. Paul uses a similar word. This is a profound, see it there? Mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now in verse 31, Paul has just quoted Genesis 2, where God institutes marriage with Adam and Eve, and, they bec- and they're united and become one flesh. And Paul says, oh yeah, yeah, Adam and Eve, and you know, that, that for this reason, a husband you know, will leave his father and wife and become united, uh, uh, wife will leave, you know what I'm trying to say, and uh, become one flesh. He says, oh, yeah, that's really, Adam was the groom and Eve was the bride, but that's just a picture and a foretaste and a symbol of a much greater marriage, the ultimate marriage, the eternal marriage between Christ the groom and the church the bride. And so verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, your marriage is to be patterned on the gospel. Jesus' relationship to his church. Do you remember in Matthew 22, Jesus is questioned about marriage by some religious leaders. They're trying to catch him out. And Jesus replied, you're on error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Do you see, there's no marriage. There's no earthly marriage in heaven. We won't have marriage partners in heaven because we'll be married to to Jesus fully, finally, completely. And so the symbol will have faded away because the reality will have arrived. The union with Christ and his church is complete. And one day the, the oneness we'll feel with Jesus will make the oneness of sexual intimacy now seem nothing more than a wave on the other side of the road. Because it's a symbol. And there's a far greater reality to come. Earthly marriage is temporary and to be patterned on the marriage of Jesus and the church. But not just to be patterned. It's to be a visual aid of the gospel. So husbands and wives should see themselves helping each other and helping the world around them go, this is what it's like to know Jesus. Your marriage will help people understand the gospel by the way you love and submit to one another, by the way you forgive one another, by the way you lay your lives down for one another as Jesus laid his life down for us. People should see a picture of Jesus in the church when they see marriage. And by the way, we haven't got time to cover it, Please speak to me one-to-one if there's an issue. But that is why the Bible could never sanction same-sex marriage. Because a groom has to come and save his bride, as it were. And the, you know, Christ and the church, that's the pattern. Earthly marriage is a reflection of that eternal heavenly reality. Which, and, there's, and, there's, and there's a bride and a groom. Thirdly, therefore, marriage is to help you discover the gospel. Because you come face to face with your sin and your flaws like you've never had to. You'll understand your selfishness and your self-absorption like you've never had to. And therefore, when you get married, you'll have to give up any pretense that you're a good person deserving God's acceptance because of your goodness. You won't even be worthy of your spouse's acceptance of you a year into marriage, let alone God's. Tim Keller talks about, he says this, think think of an old bridge over a stream. Imagine there are structural defects in the bridge that are hard to see. There may be a hairline fracture uh, that a a close inspection would reveal, but the naked eye, uh, with the naked eye, there's nothing wrong. He says, now see a 10-ton truck driving over the bridge. What will happen? He says, the pressure from the weight of the truck will open those hairline fractures so they can be seen. The structural defects will expose 
for uh, you know the, 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 those problems for everyone to see. So suddenly, all the flaws are revealed. The truck did not create the structural defects in the bridge; it revealed them. And when you get married, your spouse is a big truck driving through your heart. And marriage brings out the worst in you. It doesn't create your weaknesses, though you may blame your spouse and then you blow up. It reveals your weaknesses. It's not a bad thing. Don't be threatened by it. You're discovering the gospel. Do you see what he's saying? Marriage reveals the cracks in our characters that cannot be hidden anymore because of the weight and the closeness that marriage brings us together in the way that marriage brings us together. It's not a bad thing. It's just a truthful thing. Marriage has a power of truth to reveal who you really are. So when you get married and you run into difficulties because you're always in conflict with, with one another, as I said earlier, the problem is not your marriage partner. In a way, the problem is marriage itself. Marriage is exposing you. Tim and Kathy Keller write, marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confrontation with yourself. You're revealed. Marriage shows a realistic, unflattering picture of who you are and you're made to face it. And that's why the Bible says the basis of marriage is not a feeling, but a covenant. I'm going to love you no matter what I find out. I'm going to stay with you no matter what happens, and we're going to work through all these cracks. So marriage becomes God's great tool to change us. Look at verse 26 to 27. What did Jesus do? He loved his, the church to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Your spouse is there to reveal, marriage is there to reveal those flaws so that you can become more like Jesus, more without wrinkle. Again, a picture of Christ in the church. And because of this, your spouse has a power in your life to form your self-image like nothing else. If the whole world tells me I'm ugly, but my spouse tells me I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful because my spouse knows me. The whole world tells me I'm beautiful, but my spouse tells me I'm ugly. I'm ugly because my spouse knows me. So it's as I know this disclosure yet acceptance, truth yet grace, sinful reality yet powerful love, that I'm changed. Little by little, I'm changed and I become without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. So Tim and Kathy Keller put it like this. What is marriage for? They say, it is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look to is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. I can think of no more powerful common horizon than that. And that is why putting a Christian friendship at the heart of marriage, a marriage relationship can lift it to a level that no other vision for marriage approaches. Again, an application if you're single and maybe one day would like to get married. Ask God to give you a spiritual friend that you can go on that journey with. Don't look for external beauty, but internal beauty. Screen potential marriage partners for spiritual friendships, not sexual desire, external beauty, physical strength, earthly wealth or status. All those things are fading. Don't marry people for those things. Marry them because you look at them and go, together we can become partners together in helping each other grow to become more like Jesus as we love one another. So we've looked at the power for marriage, spirit-filled, mutually sub submissive reverence for Christ. We've looked at the secret of marriage to be patterned on the gospel, to be a visual aid of the gospel, and to help us discover the gospel. So let's talk 
maybe controversially, about the roles in marriage. And I want to be very transparent with you that Leanne and I don't agree ourselves on this. So if you don't agree with what I'm going to say now, you're in good company uh, with my lovely wife. It's my understanding that whilst there is mutual submission between husband and wife, that the submission does not look the same, that there is a difference in role. And for both husband and wife, we take our cues from Jesus. Jesus, as head of the church, is a servant leader who lays his life down for the church to make her radiant and to care for her. So headship, in verse 23 there, is, it, it, it means responsibility, protection, nurture, servant leadership, which means you're willing to lay your life down for your bride. It does not and can never mean having your own way, just for the sake of it, or pushing your weight around, or making your wife feel inferior. You can never demand submission, nor use your authority to please yourself. Husbands, lead as Christ led, and become a servant, and die for your wife. Wives, to submit doesn't mean to be passive or to mean you're inadequate or inferior or you lack intelligence or ability. Jesus submits to the Father. He's not passive, inadequate, or inferior. Submission doesn't mean inequality in greatness or worth. Otherwise, Jesus would be in unequal to the Father in greatness and worth. And remember, Jesus said, the greatest among you is a servant. So Jesus' submission to the Father is actually a sign of his greatness, not his weakness. And by the way, verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, is addressed to the wife. So she does so voluntary in obedience to God, not because her husband is telling her to. A husband has no right to tell his wife to submit to her. It's a voluntary decision of the wife. And the husband is just to think about how I can lay, well, how he can lay his life down. So as with, as with all Christians, we're called to submit to one another, but the submission is not identical. Christ submits to the church, the, the church submits to Christ by recognizing him as the head and following his leadership. And Christ submits to the church by loving her and taking the form of a servant. So it's my understanding that Paul is saying there is mutual submission, verse 21, but they're expressed in different ways. The, women, the woman will follow the husband's lead and the man will exercise his leadership by serving his wife. How does that work out in marriage? Who should do what roles or jobs within marriage? That's for the couple to decide. It is astonishing that Paul gets to no practical details of how this should work out. He never spells out, oh, that means this, that, or the other. He never does it. For him, the principle may be clear. The practicalities are for every couple to work out. Some people have said that the main way these verses are applied is if a husband and a wife disagree on e with each other and have to make a decision. You know, that there's a need to make a decision, and you need to have a tie-breaking authority and he said the husband has that fearful responsibility and will be held accountable for the leadership decisions. Up until now, Leanne and I have never had a scenario where any of us have had to, uh, you know, we've disagreed on something major, we've had to move forward on. My only hope is if it did happen, I'd be willing to lay my life down for her. Now, as I said, some of you may disagree with what I'm saying. Some of you may be, your blood might be boiling right now. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, to summarize Leanne's point of view, just very briefly, it's just a brief summary. Leanne would say mutual submission of verse 21 when, uh, is what guides everything. And the headship that Paul talks about in verse 23 is about nurturing care, not authority. So for Leanne, the roles are equal, uh, and the man does not necessarily have a leadership or authority in the marriage. There you go. You didn't know that, did you? But what Leanne and I agree on, and what I hope we can all agree on, is that the cross is at the center of marriage. Our marriages are to be cross-shaped. And therefore, if is anything in us that is wanting to rise up and become dominant, 
If there's anything in us that is thirsting after power and control, that is of the sinful nature, not of the spirit, and has nothing here around anything like that. So if in your marriage you disagree on this, as we do, instead of focusing and debating for hours on the role, start focusing on Jesus and how he laid his life down for you and follow his example by going to the cross and watch how your marriage will flourish and will withstand any storm. I actually think that Leanne and I in our disagreement have modeled Ephesians 5. Love, respect, mutual submission and sacrifice towards one another. And it's been costly for us at times, like Ephesians 5 says it will. And it's revealed stuff in us, like Ephesians 5 says it will. And we are better off because we've had to grapple with it. The gospel has gone deeper into our lives. This is a profound mystery. Ah, I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's made us more like Jesus. It's ironed out wrinkles and smoothed off many rough edges in us. If you're married here today or preparing for marriage or would one day like to marry, this is profound. Think on these things. Think on Jesus and his church and what it means to have a marriage modeled and patterned and displaying that. If you're single here today, I hope just by my vulnerability at the end, we need your love and support. All couples do. Please support us as we try and support you. And remember to screen for spiritual friendship in a future spouse, that you might together become those that help each other to become like Jesus. And for all of us, single or married, marriage ultimately, earthly marriage is ultimately about a heavenly marriage to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, in whom we find completion and wholeness and intimacy, satisfaction and eternal life. I love that new song you sang. I didn't know it before. Um, King of love, my shepherd is. And then it says, ruler of my heart, lover of my soul. That's the ultimate marriage, that we would know, we'd be smitten, we'd be, have this inner joy because we have the lover of our soul as our Lord and Savior and big brother, Jesus. So we're going to do what Ephesians 5 says if you're filled with the Spirit. We're going to stand and we're going to sing about our union with Christ and Christ alone. Why don't I pray? If you're comfortable, just close your eyes and we'll, uh, we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this such a deep, wonderful letter written 2,000 years ago, and yet today we are grappling with it, we're thinking it through, we're trying to figure out how to apply it to our culture in our day. I thank you, Jesus, that you become the one whom we all take our cue from. Any sense of leadership is about your servant-hearted leadership, that the greatest amongst you is the one that serves. And any sense of submission comes with that strength and greatness that you brought as you submitted to the Father and submitted yourself to death on a cross. And I pray we therefore redefine all, our, all the hang-ups we have. We'd redefine them all because we're thinking of you and what you've done for us. And that you'd give us that inner relish of the soul that comes from knowing that you are the lover of our soul. And you came for us. And we're now united with you. And our story has become your story. And your story has become our story. We're caught up in your purposes and your plans. I pray for marriages here. Or those engaged to be married. Or wanting to be married that you would strengthen us to make our marriages shaped like the cross of Christ. Not thirsting for power and jostling for position, but trying to give ourselves up. I pray we wouldn't be intimidated when our marriages reveal how fallen we are, but we'd see that that's your spirit's work to change us. I pray for those that are single here today, that they would know they have a role to support and care for marriages, and they'd pray for our marriages in this church. 
I pray for those that would love to have a, a, a life partner and a spouse, Lord, that they would trust you with that and would continue to look for spiritual friendship at the heart of a future partner and trust you for the timing and the provision of that and, and seek you as the lover of their souls. And for all of us, Lord, now as we sing, may we once again be ravished and captured that we're in Christ and all that that means for us. In his name we pray. Amen.